The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Um, Just so you know, we are going through the whole book of Acts. We started in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and we have been studying it kind of verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, and we are now kind of nearing towards the end here, Acts chapter 18, and this book was written by Luke, Dr. Luke, who is a personal friend and associate of the Apostle Paul. Luke wrote this down from personal experience and eyewitness opportunities he had also from people he personally interviewed, and that were those were many folks, including the Apostle Paul. And he was guided by the Holy Spirit when he wrote it 2,000 years ago so that its accuracy is guaranteed from God to us. And then God's Holy Spirit superintended the last 2,000 years to preserve it for us so that what we have here is reliable, the Word of God without error. That's what we believe as Christians. Right now, we are uh, looking at the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who is now in his second missionary journey. Been following him step by step. His headquarters at his home church, send-off church, are in Antioch of Syria, which is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. That was the church that sent him out and supported him on this ministry. He's been gone away from home, planting churches, cold turkey, Going from one city to the next, he's been gone for almost three years. Most of the cities that he's in the regions that he's entered, he'd never been there before. Most of the cities that he's been to had never heard the gospel or Christianity before. So it was all fresh work. Most of the cities that he entered over the course of these three years, he made people mad and got chased out of town. So for the most part, uh, most of Paul's ministry, he's getting chased out of city after city. It's kind of been the mark. And so the last city on this missions trip is the city of Corinth. And so that's what we looked at last week. Corinth is going to be a little different because Paul would go in, plant a church, get to know people, preach in the synagogue, evangelize out on the street to Gentiles, pagans, and get some believers. The majority would reject. And then they'd chase him out of town. Sometimes beat him up and then threw him out of town. Sometimes got the legal authorities involved and banished him from the city and he wasn't allowed to come back again. So it was like he'd go in and plant a church, get to know folks, see people get saved, and then he couldn't stay there more than two months to continue the work and be the pastor. Very frustrating. So I think God honored Paul's work by his last stop in Corinth. God allowed him to go to Corinth, go in there, plant a church, from scratch, in a very pagan, immoral society. And God blessed him with success, not without opposition and persecution, but God blessed him in a unique way in that he was allowed to stay in Corinth for almost two years, totally unprecedented in his two missionary journeys. Almost two years. What a, how, how refreshing and what a privilege for that young new church, those Corinthians. They got to have their founding pastor and apostle around and accessible for almost two years. Whereas those in Thessalonica or Philippi, he came in, found the church, and he has to leave after a month. Another unique thing about the ministry in Corinth, Paul being allowed to be there for almost two years, is God protected him physically. He got beat up in Philippi, thrown in jail, beaten with rods almost to death. He got beat up in Lystra, 
or they pummeled him with stones to the point of where he was probably unconscious. They thought he was dead, then dragged him out of the city. Iconium, they tried to stone him to death, chased him out of town. But in Corinth, God protected him physically. So this is a unique opportunity that Paul had, and that kind of concludes the second missionary journey. He's traveled thousands of miles, hundreds hundreds and hundreds of miles on foot, on land. Uh, it's been rigorous many times, alone, sometimes with his companions, Timothy, Silas. On short periods of time, it was Luke. And he went from city to city. Sometimes the new believers, a new believer too, might join with him and be an associate and travel as well. But a lot of this time was alone. That's very difficult and very challenging. So let's go ahead and look at uh, Paul's concluding ministry here in Corinth, but also as he wraps up this entire second missionary trip. Acts 18, 12 through 23. I broke it up just into five points there, emphasizing each of the cities that Paul is going to stop in along the way as he wraps up this ministry. And that becomes the outline with most of the focus on wrapping up his ministry in Corinth. And that's point number one. So let's go ahead and look at each city and a highlight of what Paul did in each city. The first one being verses 12 through 17, where the point there is justified. Justified in Corinth. Justified, not saved, but exonerated formally before a court where he was being interrogated or about to be interrogated. Charges were brought against him formally. God intervenes and he is not guilty. He is innocent. He's exonerated. He's justified in Corinth. Gallio makes a ruling. So let's go ahead and look at verses 12 through 17. I'll just read through that uh, as Paul wraps up his time in Corinth, almost two years in the scenario. We'll make a few comments. So by way of reminder, um, he's been in Corinth. He went there. He met Aquila and Priscilla, two Jews, probably Jewish Christians who were banished from probably Rome, Italy, and fled to Corinth for safety. They started, they were probably well-to-do, weavers, tent makers was the business they had. They were able to establish that business in Corinth. They bought a house. Paul came there. They let Paul live in their house. They got to know him, and they were kindred spirits because they were all tent makers and believers. And Paul, no doubt, blessed their soul because he was an apostle. And they had a partnership there. So God blessed Paul, who was discouraged with this beautiful friendship with uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, This was around 49 A.D. when Aquila and Priscilla were banished from Rome because that's when Claudius the emperor made a decree and banished all Jews who were not citizens of Rome to leave Rome. And primarily, they think historically, Claudius did that, not because so much he was anti-Semitic or hated Jews, but because Jewish congregations were creating disturbances of note. And that's one thing that Rome didn't tolerate. They just wanted the peace, keep the peace. So Judaism actually was a tolerated and legitimate religion within the Roman Empire, but there were these uprisings for whatever reason in Rome with the Jews, and it probably had to do with Christians who became Jews, and they had all these theological disputes. And some of the Jews uh, who weren't believers did overreact at times and get violent. We've seen that as a trend. 
And so to keep the peace, Claudius banished for a time temporarily the Jews from that area. And so that's where Aquila and Priscilla came from. And so then uh, Paul continues his ministry. Finally, Silas and Timothy rejoined Paul. They've been gone for a while. He was alone. They brought a bunch of money for him that was given from churches like in Thessalonica and Philippi. And there's enough money that freed Paul up that he didn't have to work anymore, that he could just focus full-time on the ministry, preaching the word, teaching in the synagogue, evangelizing, and then discipling those who got saved. Uh, so this is all happening in Corinth. He preached in the synagogue. There was some response. Some people got saved. The synagogue leader got saved, which was rare, the leader of the synagogue. Um, then the Jews got angry. They didn't like Paul's ministry. Paul made it, set down a headquarters in a house literally connected to the synagogue wall. So all these Christians keep coming and going, right? Probably walking right past the synagogue to the Christian home where Paul had his headquarters. And that just irritated them to no end. They just couldn't stand that for much longer. Then one thing we didn't get to talk about much last week that's important. Look at verse uh, 9 in 18 before we get to verse 12. It said, the Lord said to Paul. So this is the Lord is Jesus. This isn't just God generically or the Father. This is Jesus. The resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ from heaven said to Paul in the night by a vision. So this is. This really happened. This wasn't just a dream that Paul was having and he woke up and, oh, you should hear about my dream. No. The Lord Jesus Christ made a special visit to the Apostle Paul. And he made him a promise. And he said to Paul, do not be afraid. Literally, stop living in fear. Stop being afraid. Paul was afraid. So fearful that he thought, you know what, maybe I shouldn't keep talking about Jesus. So Jesus encouraged him and came to him at a night in a vision and said, do not be afraid, stop being afraid, continue, go on speaking, do not be silent, I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city, I have many people who are going to come to know Jesus if you preach them the gospel. So this was incredibly encouraging for the Apostle Paul. The one comment I didn't get to make last week on this that's important for us, especially in our day and age, is that, notice, we have been watching the ministry of the Apostle Paul for several years now in Acts. First missionary journey. The second missionary journey is about three years long. The first missionary journey over a year. It's almost five years of ministry. How many times have we seen where the Lord came to Paul in a dream or the Lord came to Paul in a vision at night? Hardly ever. So this is a rare occasion. This is a rare occasion. It really happened, but it's a rare occasion. So that's the first point, because there are Christians who claim that God or Jesus comes to visit them routinely in their dreams. Or I saw Jesus, and Jesus said to me, and Jesus came to me. Mm, Probably not. And notice it says the Lord Jesus came to Paul in a vision, not At one point in the book of Acts, have we seen a statement that said, and the Lord Jesus came to such and such a Christian or all the Christians or that hasn't happened. When God has intervened on occasion in a supernatural way out of the norm, it has been through the apostles. We saw that early on in the book of Acts. And the miracles were done, amazing signs and miracles were done at the hands of the apostles. That's a repeated phrase. The Lord Jesus Christ gave Peter a vision. The Lord appeared to Paul 
He appeared to Paul rarely. And it's always through the apostles. So, in other words, this is not the Lord Jesus Christ appearing to believers in a dream, in a vision, is not normative and regular for us as Christians who are not apostles. That's important. The apostle Paul, he was an apostle. That is a spiritual gift. He was a prophet. That was a spiritual gift. The apostle Paul probably had all the spiritual gifts. He spoke in tongues, all of that stuff. He did. He had the gift of miracles. He was unique. God used the apostles in a unique way to lay the foundation of the church. After the foundation of the church was laid and the 13 apostles died, there were no more apostles. And there haven't been for 2,000 years. Very important. So this has to do with Paul's spiritual gift and the unique access he had to God at God's initiative when it was needed. As a matter of fact, Paul even had a third, a vision of the third heaven. And it was so special, so unique, so unprecedented that God told him, you know what? You are not to repeat anything you saw up here. No leaks. So this was very rare. I wanted to point that out because I didn't get to talk about that because uh, you will interact with Christians at times who speak of this, these supernatural visions and dreams and mystical experiences as though they're routine and every Christian should be experiencing this on a regular basis. And if you don't, you kind of feel guilty and, wow, I don't have visions and dreams and all that all the time. By the way, if, if you have a dream and Jesus is in it or something spiritual goes on, you don't know that's from God because we all have dreams. That's very dangerous. It's very subjective. Sometimes you can have a dream about something in the Bible or Jesus because you were reading the Bible. and It's in your mind. You heard a sermon by a preacher. It's in your mind. It's in your subconscious. So it is normal to have dreams about things you've been talking about, discussing, and listening to, but then to try to interpret it supernaturally and put it on the same part of revelation, the Bible, divine revelation, is dangerous. But we see that, that is a very common phenomenon that we have today in American Christianity, we say that, no, the direct revelation is right here in the Bible. God wrote it down. It is, the Bible is sufficient. We believe in the sufficiency of the scripture. I don't need dream. I, I've been a Christian since, uh, over 30 years. I have, just so you know, I'm going to confess. I have never had a vision of Jesus. I've never seen him, which is consistent with what Peter said in his epistle. You believe in him, although you have not seen him. Jesus has never talked to me audibly. God's never spoken to me audibly. I've never had a mystical experience. But God does speak to me through his Holy Spirit who lives in me. That's real. It's not mystical, but it's there's a subjective component to it. It's personal. The Spirit living in you is very personal, very intimate. Not mystical, but very personal, very real, and very intimate. There's a difference. And God speaks to me through his Holy Spirit living in me. He speaks to me also through his word and allows me to understand it. This is his word, and this is just as real. When I read the Bible and understand it, that communication from God is just as real as if Jesus was standing in front of me talking to me because it is the living word of God. So I wanted to highlight that because people will take these unique events that happen in Acts and they try to normalize them for everyday Christian living. And then some of us who don't have these experiences feel kind of left out or we're unspiritual. We don't have enough faith. When actually the Bible says, and Paul said to these Corinthians, he said, Christians are to walk by faith, not by sight, right? Walk by faith, but not by sight. That's what mature Christians do. All right, let's move on. Uh, so with that, Paul is now encouraged. And in verse 11, uh, 
he stayed there for another year and a half after Jesus promised him, you know what, Paul, stay here, keep preaching, take your time, relax, you will not be harmed. And so he ended up staying there for another year and six months, 18 months. And right after that, boom, Satan or whoever sets in with an attack, with opposition, trying to undo the promise he just got from Jesus. So that's point number one. So I'll read verses 12 and following. But verse 12, but while Gallio was proconsul or the governor of Achaia, which is southern Greece, Athens, Corinth, the Jews who didn't believe Paul's preaching, that they, they heard Paul's preaching in the synagogue, the Jews with one accord, this was a plan. It was strategic. With one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, the Bema seat, forced him, took him to court. Verse 13, they made allegations saying, this man, Paul, persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Which law? Probably the Roman law. Not the Jewish law. Could have been, but it's probably Roman law because we've seen this before in Acts. They're trying to get in in trouble with the Roman Empire. Paul is practicing and propagating a religion that has not been approved by Caesar. Judaism has been approved by Caesar. It was okay to be a practicing Jew. Verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, so they were allowed, so they go before the court and they're allowed to make their case and they bring the allegations and the crime. And then Paul would be allowed to respond to the charges. Then after that, the judge would render his decision. So Paul's ready to speak up. He heard the charges and he's about to plead his case as he's done in other places when he's been on trial. And before he opens his mouth, verse 14, it says, Gallio, who was the governor, kind of the Pontius Pilate guy of that area, who was an official Roman official, he was a higher up. He was not a local civil magistrate. He actually represented Rome. So he had almost universal binding authority and power as a governor, not the local mayor, not a simple magistrate. So it was a very high position that Gallio had. So before Paul even opens his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong, there it is. He heard the details, he heard the case, and Gallio makes his decision. This guy's done nothing wrong. He hasn't violated any Roman law. For a matter of wrong or a vicious crime, oh, Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, the Mosaic law, your Jewish religion, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to be a judge on these matters. You know what? You said he's violating Roman law, and I've listened to your case And all you're talking about is this intramural squabble about interpretations of the Mosaic law. This has nothing to do with Roman law. This is a Judaism thing. This guy obviously is just a sect or a subset of your own Jewish religion. And Judaism is okay. Judaism is acceptable. He's a a form of a Jew. He's done nothing wrong. He's fine. That's what Gallio concluded. And get this, verse 16. And Gallio drove them away. It wasn't... And he dismiss them or ask them to leave. His terminology is very specific. He drove them, get out of my courtroom. In other words, well, the courtroom was actually outside. You can still go to Corinth today and actually see where it was, out by the square, and it's been unearthed, and there are stones still there where the courtroom was and where the actual judgment seat was as it rose up just a little bit called the Bema judgment. 
where the judge would stand. It is still there today. And there's Galileo. Get out, get out. Get out of my presence. Leave. You're wasting my time. And he threw the case out. And he drove them out from the judgment seat. So here were the Jews. Remember back in verse 12, it says the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul. In other words, there was behind the scenes planning going on for quite some time. And, okay, we got to think through what are we going to charge him with? What will be acceptable to Gallio? Uh, what will get him arrested? What might get him executed? What might shut him down since he's the spokesperson for Christianity and we can squelch this religion once and for all? So there was a lot of planning that went into this thing and how they were going to approach and plead to Gallio and win him over. And they appointed a spokesperson among their group. Okay, who will be the spokesperson? And so they decided on Sosthenes, who was probably the synagogue leader, a man of authority, respected in the synagogue, an unbelieving Jew at this point. And so Sosthenes was the spokesperson of the Jews before the judgment seat of Gallio. And he presents his case, and they've got all these witnesses, and there's Paul all by himself. And Gallio says, uh, you have no case. This man's done nothing wrong. Get out of my presence. So two things as a result. By Gallio dismissing the case and basically saying Paul has done nothing wrong, he basically exonerated or gave his stamp of approval to Christianity under the purview of the Roman Empire, which was awesome. And because he was a governor, a proconsul, handpicked by the emperor himself to represent Achaia or southern Greece, he had, Gallio had connect, personal connections with the emperors back in Rome. And because of his authoritative position as governor over a province, his conclusion would set precedent for all other related provinces in Rome. And because Gallio said, you know what, this apostle and his religion, Christianity, whatever you want to call it, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not a threat. It is completely legal. He is allowed to practice his religion. Uh, that was a huge decision on behalf of the freedom of Christianity. And that's why Paul, for the next 10 years, could continue to preach under the Roman Empire wherever he wanted, unscathed, unopposed, based on the precedent that Gallio had sent. That was incredible. That would be undone 12-plus years later when Nero came along, one of the worst emperors of all time, who had Paul executed... And by the way, had Gallio executed as well. And Gallio's brother, Seneca, both Gallio and Seneca, very influential in the Roman Empire at this time. We know from the history books, it's unassailable that Gallio was appointed as proconsul of Achaia in July of 51 AD. So it's after July of 51 AD when this incident happened. And this is one of the most specific events that sets a reliable date for the chronology of the book of Acts. Absolutely amazing. The other thing that happened here, so Gallio dismisses them, get out of my presence. They didn't get what they wanted, so they are prone to emotion and overreacting if you have seen these unbelieving Jews throughout the book of Acts, even resorting to violence time and time again. And that's exactly what they do here. The Jews didn't get their way. Sosthenes got shut down. And they began to talk among themselves, what kind of a leader is he? 
You know, he blew it. Sosthenes, we chose the wrong guy. They should have let me speak. Sosthenes blew it. He didn't say the right thing. He didn't win over Gallio. And so very quickly they get very angry and they turn on their leader. All these unbelieving Jews. They turn on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and look what happened. Uh, verse 17, it says, they, so they're being, being turned away, and they're still in the presence of Gallio, who's up on the judgment seat, out there in broad daylight in public. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, their leader, the leader of the synagogue, and they began beating him in front of the Bema seat so that Gallio could see this. And they just start pummeling their leader. Wow, it just shows you what kind of men and character they were. And get this, Gallio's watching, but he was not concerned about these things. You want to fight? Fight. Doesn't affect me. I already, I already rendered my decision. It reminded me, I had five older brothers growing up. Five older brothers. I was the youngest of six boys. And especially when I was really little, time and time again, we'd get into these fights in the living room. My dad worked all day, so he was never home. So my mom had to contend with the six boys fighting all the time. And it, she just got so exhausted and exasperated. At one, after a while, she just said, you know what? Just go ahead and kill yourselves. I don't care anymore. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I'm the youngest. I'm the one getting pummeled here. I'm on the bottom of the duck. Anyway, this conjured up very bad memories for me. Galileo was not concerned. My mom was not concerned about any of these things. They took hold of Sosthenes and beat him to a bloody pulp. Well, whatever happened to Sosthenes? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 real quick. This is a new kind of evangelism. Uh, pummels, pummel somebody to a, a bloody pulp, and maybe they'll become a Christian. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. This is like uh, four years later. The Apostle Paul has been away from the Corinthian congregation. He writes them his first letter. He introduces himself as Paul. Chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes, the former anti-Christian synagogue leader who got beat to a pulp, became a believer. You know, they probably beat him to a bloody pulp and just left him on the pavement. And I could just see the Apostle Paul being a Christian, having the heart and love of Jesus, full of compassion, going over there to his enemy who just accused him in court. Loving on his enemy, loving on his fellow man. Binding his wounds. Maybe even getting help, man. Let's take this guy. Let's, let's take care of him. And they did. And he becomes a Christian. Absolutely amazing. That is the love of Christ. Love your enemies. That's what Jesus said. Look how efficacious it can be. Absolutely amazing. And so Paul is justified, exonerated. Let's go on. Uh, second number point. So we see Paul. Now Paul's going to start moving rather quickly. After his year and a half, almost two years in Corinth, as he wraps things up. Point number two, vowing. After being justified, he's vowing. Vowing in Sencrea, giving thanks to God, verse 18. Paul, having remained many days longer in Corinth. Why did he remain many days longer? Because he just got a a carte blanche blessing from Jesus. Uh, Nobody's going to hurt you. They hurt Sosthenes. But Paul was resting in the promise of Christ. So he's going to stay as long as he possibly can with the blessing of protection he got from the Lord Jesus. And he does. He stays in Corinth for a long time. And many people, we've already seen in the passage, many Corinthians came to know the Lord. It's probably a huge megachurch by the time Paul had left. 
huge megachurch that Paul loved that had all kinds of problems as a Christian church. So verse 18, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren. So now he's leaving. He bids farewell to the Corinthian church and all those wonderful believers uh, that he met while he was there. I mean, uh, and he's very thankful. That's what he's, it says that he's taken a vow. Paul remained there for many days, uh, not longer, took leave of the brethren, left Corinth, and put out to sea for Syria. So he goes to the port there by Corinth, St. Korea is called. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. So Priscilla and Aquila are actually going to go with Paul, leaving Corinth to go to Ephesus. And in Sancria, there in Corinth at the port, he had his hair cut for he was keeping a vow. So cutting his hair ended the vow. It didn't bring begin the vow. So at some point, maybe a month before he left, the Apostle Paul took a vow. Most people think it's the Nazarite vow. Probably is, Numbers chapter 6. And it was a vow of thanksgiving and worship. And he had much to be thankful for. God, I thank you for all that you've done here in Corinth. God, I thank you for allowing me to stay here for almost two years. God, I thank you that I didn't have to be chased out of town or continually be on the run while I was here. Thank you for the forgiveness and safety that you gave me. Lord Jesus, thank you for the personal uh, visitation that you gave me to encourage me. God, thank you for sending me Aquila and Priscilla, dear brother and sister in the Lord. God, thank you for bringing Timothy and Silas back and with all that Money, which is a sign of the love from the saints in Macedonia and Philippi and Thessalonica. And God, thank you for taking care of me and giving me a, a place to live in a home that was safe and reliable. The Lord Jesus had no place to lay his head. God, thank you. Thank you for all of those who came to know Christ. And it was many here in Corinth. You were right, Lord. You told me you had many of your people here. And they came to know you as they responded to God. God, thank you. That's what the Nazarite vow was. It was a vow of thanksgiving. So according to number six, Paul determined, I'm going to take a Nazarite vow as a way to thank the Lord God for his goodness to me. And also that I might be very disciplined and deliberate in my thinking and abstaining from certain things. And so he did not cut his hair. During the time of the vow, he did not cut his hair. So he let it grow however long. During the time of his vow, he would not touch any alcohol or any drink from the vine. He just abstained from it. He wasn't allowed to go in near dead people or cemeteries or dead things. He had to abstain because that's what the vow required. By the way, this is part of the Mosaic law. It didn't earn any forgiveness. There were no, no special blessings attached to it. It was just a way to formally thank God as prescribed by God. And at the end, you would cut your hair and then you would offer it to the Lord as a sacrifice. And that's what Paul did. It was a sign of thanksgiving. And so Paul is not reverting back into Judaism. He's not being a legalist. He's just being consistent with 1 Corinthians 9. He's in Corinth. He reminded them, to the Jews, I am a Jew. Legitimately, and to the, the Greeks and the Gentiles, I will be a Greek or a Gentile. So I said earlier, we saw this in Acts chapter 2, when the Jerusalem church got saved, all these Jews became Christians. They did not immediately jettison all things Jewish. They didn't stop going to the temple. They didn't stop going to prayer three times a day at the temple. They didn't necessarily even stop offering sacrifices. Early on in the early church, there was a transition period. And there were, now they're doing things like the Apostle Paul. He's doing things as a fulfilled Jew, knowing that it is the Lord Jesus who is the promised Messiah, who fulfills all these Mosaic promises. So that's what 
Paul is doing, but primarily it was Thanksgiving. And another way to be thankful is all the wonderful people God blessed Paul with while he was in Corinth. Gaius, Sosthenes, Crispus, leader of the synagogue, Chloe, a wonderful, dear, godly lady who opened up her home as, to make it a church there in Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla, Silas, and to make much, much to be thankful for. And that was the nature of his vow. And then he moves on. And now Paul is off and he's going to move very quickly, almost over 1,500 miles in just like two or three verses. Let's go ahead and look at it. Next stop, number three, preaching in Ephesus, as was his custom, verse 19 through 21. So he sets out from the port in Corinth after shaving his head, fulfilling the Nazarite vow of thanks. And then he's off, verse 19. They came to Ephesus. They, that would be Paul, Aquila, Priscilla. Aquila, Priscilla end up staying in Ephesus for several years. And they probably start up shop there. They build a business there. They use their home for a church there. And then eventually they're going to end up doing that in Rome. Very gracious, godly couple. So they come to Ephesus, uh, and Paul left Aquila and Priscilla there, and now he himself entered the synagogue immediately, and he reasoned with the Jews as the rabbi, doing the same thing he did in Acts 13, and that is he opens up the Old Testament scriptures. He preaches to them. We all came from God the Creator through Adam and Eve. We fell into sin. We are separated from God. God promised a solution. God promised a Savior. That Savior's name is Jesus Christ, and I declare to you today that God has sent him. He died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God. He rose again from the dead. He reigns on high as the Messiah of the Scriptures. And everyone is accountable to bow the knee to Him, to call on Him for forgiveness. He is the only way to heaven. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul preached, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Apparently, Paul didn't get to stay there long enough to irritate the Jews again like he typically did. He cut it short. Now he himself entered the synagogue, reasoned with the Jews from the Scriptures, as was his custom, we were learned earlier, when they asked him to stay for a longer time. So immediately, the initial response is, oh, this is interesting, this is intriguing, can you stay longer? And he did not consent, he had to go. But taking leave of them, he said to them, I will return to you again if God wills. And God honored that because he will return in Acts chapter 19 on the third missionary journey. And he set sail from Ephesus preaching the gospel. Let's go to number four. Well, Paul, he's just go, 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 go. Well, number four, resting in Antioch, back with the home church, verse 22. So when Paul sails from Ephesus, he landed on the coast of Israel there at Caesarea, just about 100 miles from Jerusalem. And he went up and greeted the church. That'd be the church in Jerusalem, probably greeted the apostles and Peter and gave him a report and I just spent almost three years planting churches. Here's how it went. It was amazing. Very brief. But he had a unity with the, the home church of Jerusalem and then he went back up to his home church. It says he went down to Antioch even though it's 300 miles north because Jerusalem is way up here and you go down geographically to get to Antioch. And he goes to his home church, beginning of verse 23 says, and he spent some time there. So he was able to relax and debrief and be with the saints and have worship with them and tell them about what God has done for three years and the work that he's doing and for him to get caught up and uh, get his bones healed. A reprieve, a very much needed break for the Apostle Paul. And he gets rested up and God fills him up again. And then it's God sends him out once again for his third missionary journey, which will begin actually, and that's point number five. 
after resting, he's visiting, visiting in Galatia, building up the saints. It's actually visiting in Galatia and all those churches that he planted on his first missionary journey. Verse 23, and having spent some time there, he let, and there's a bunch of participles that are being used and strung together here in verse 22 and 23 in the original Greek text, which kind of uh, gives the impression of a sense of urgency and moving quickly. And that's why you've got just in two verses, Paul travels over 1,500 miles with not a lot of detail given to us. He is just on the move. He's concerned about the, the saints in Galatia, man, because the last time, remember the Galatians, he already wrote that letter that uh, they were being beguiled and fooled and the legalists were trying to tear them down and destroy that church as well as Derby and Lystra. So he's going back up to uh, just strengthen those churches and encourage them. So having spent some time there, he left and passed successfully through the Galatian region. So he starts going west, so Antioch, and then he's going west, and he actually travels 200 miles through his hometown probably of Tarsus. And then he keeps going, and then he goes to the hometown of uh, Timothy, where he planted a church, Lystra, Iconium, these places where he got either stoned or chased out of town. And it says he made it through those regions successfully, meaning he had enemies there. Somehow God protected him. Maybe he just stayed low and under the radar as he often did. But his goal was to encourage the saints there, strengthening all the disciples, bringing more revelation to them, seeing how they're doing, helping them establish leadership in the church so they could be healthy. Very encouraging for those saints. So that's the culmination of Paul's two-year ministry. Absolutely amazing. Thank God for the ministry of the Apostle Paul because of a result of Paul's ministry. We ended up with three 13 New Testament books. And many of us who are Gentiles and non-Jews, that's our lineage. The gospel came through the Apostle Paul, who was the apostle to the Gentiles. Let me close before we have communion with just some practical thoughts that we can apply or glean from watching Paul Paul's second missionary journey for over the course of two to three years. Uh, just some bullet points here. Just These are reminders, but they're good of what we've seen in the life of Paul that we can apply to our own life. Minister, point number one, ministry is difficult. I didn't say anybody, hear anybody say amen. Ministry is difficult. Amen. 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 Number two, you will face opposition. Yes, you will. Paul did. Number three, as a result, Paul modeled this for us. You notice he always had partners in ministry. He always traveled with the team. He never went by himself. He wasn't the lone wolf. He wasn't a Christian lone ranger. He knew that Proverbs said, he who isolates himself is a fool. He knew Genesis 2, before sin entered, where God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Paul always had companions. He always had partners. He knew that he was weak. He did not trust himself. We see that in Romans 7. He always had accountability. He always had brothers and sisters strengthening him, encouraging him, and he could do vice versa for them. And boy, in the midst of opposition and difficulty in ministry, boy, do we need that. And Paul modeled that perfectly and beautifully. Boy, you got somebody who's a Christian who ends up finding themselves alone, secluding themselves, isolating themselves. That is danger. They keep everybody at hand's length and aloof. They're setting themselves up for failure. Paul didn't do that. He refused to do that. Uh, so point number three, stay connected. Stay connected, stay accountable. 
That's what Paul did in ministry. Number four, trust God's sovereignty. In other words, God is in control of all things. God doesn't give you an easy road, but you can trust him for all things. God got him through getting beat up in Philippi. Next one, be strategic in your ministry and in your decision making. Be strategic. Paul wasn't just willy-nilly, fly by the seat of his pants. He's very strategic, very thoughtful, very disciplined, sensed the Spirit, submitted to the leading of the Spirit, took input and suggestions from his partners in ministry. So be strategic in ministry. Next one, be prayerful. That's what Paul did, always leaning on God in prayer. Just taking every desire, every plan, laying it before God, uh, this is my desire, but you are in charge. God, I need your help. God, comfort me. God, help my partners. Prayer, absolutely vital. And then the last one, get encouraged. Get encouraged. How do you do that? You put yourself in positions to be encouraged when you get down and discouraged as a Christian. And the Bible is clear. There are several. How do you get encouraged if you're down and discouraged as a believer in this world, which is easy to do? You put yourself in positions to be encouraged. Well, how do I do that? Well, um, the Bible says scriptures, Romans and Corinthians say scripture being in scriptures provide encouragement. Well, I'm discouraged, pastor. Well, yeah, I, I know it's that's normal. Well, that's not very comforting. Well, I get discouraged, too. How long have you been discouraged? I've been depressed for six months. OK, tell me about your Bible reading. When's the last time you read the Bible? I don't know, about seven months ago. Oh, no wonder you deserve to be discouraged. You can't be encouraged if you're not to have a lifeline of an IV into God's work. That's how he feeds your soul. That's how you get encouraged. How else do you get encouraged? Through prayer. Come before the throne of grace. So you've been depressed for six months. Really, you can't even get out of bed. That's sad. When's the la- What's your prayer life like? Oh, it's kind of hit and miss. Well, how hit? How miss? When's the last time you had extended prayer time with God? Oh, it was probably three months ago. Wow, you, no wonder you're depressed. I'm depressed that you're depressed. You, you can't go day after day without praying to God and pleading with Him through prayer. How, oh, I noticed you haven't been in church in four weeks. You don't go to Bible study anymore. Where in the world are you? When's the last time you went to church or worship or were hanging out with other believers who were like-minded? Who are you hanging out with? Who are your friends right now? Oh, they're unbelievers. Oh, okay. When's the last time you went to church and were accountable in the men's group or a discipleship or with the saints? Uh, probably four months ago. No wonder you're discouraged and depressed. God said you need to be with God's people to be encouraged. Encourage one another. That's what we're supposed to do. That's why you go to church on the Lord's Day every Sunday, Roman or Hebrews 10. Encourage one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So God's given us very practical things that we can do to help keep us encouraged because uh, we are fallen, we are finite, we have sin living in us, and we have a devil who is real. But God hasn't abandoned us. He loves us, and he wants to encourage us. We just need to follow him in obedience. So with that, let's go ahead, and now we'll go... uh, to the Lord's table together. As I said earlier, if you're a Christian, you're invited to celebrate communion, the Lord's table. Uh, the brothers can go ahead and come down and start distributing the elements. And I'm going to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 if you want to follow. It's appropriate. Paul said this to the Corinthians, and we've been watching his ministry in the city of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 
Paul gave a, a summary of the meaning of communion or the Lord's table. First Corinthians chapter 11. So as the plate comes by, you just grab one cup, and in the cup it has uh, the drink and the bread. And just hold that for a minute while I read the scripture, and we'll, and we'll partake together. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord, so the Lord Jesus gave him some divine revelation of what happened uh, on Passover night. The Lord Jesus, uh, from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you. So Paul planted the church in Corinth, and then he taught them about baptism, and he taught them about communion. And now he's reminding them of its meaning because it was being abused that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, just before his death, he took bread, real bread as a symbol, and he, when he had given thanks, Eucharistos, just means to give thanks. And he gave thanks to the Lord God, to the Father. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So it was metaphorical. It was symbolic of Jesus' perfect life and how he would give his life as a substitute for sinners. That's what we celebrate at Communion. Jesus' death on our behalf. We give thanks. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for my sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for forgiveness of all of my sin because of what you've done. It's a time to celebrate. Verse 25, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. I just love that phrase, the new covenant, because that was the promise in the Old Testament that someday the Holy Spirit would literally live in believers. That is cause for celebration. I am so angry and disgusted at the sin that lives in me, but I also have the Holy Spirit living in me. How comforting is that reality? That's the new covenant. That's reason to celebrate. And thank God. This is the blood of the new covenant. Jesus said, in his blood, by his death, he does it all. We don't do it. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So that's what we do at communion. We remember the Lord Jesus, his perfect life, how he gave his life, how he died as a substitute. He was punished for our sin. He absorbed the wrath of the Father. He was buried. He rose again from the dead, ascended on high, and anyone who comes to him as Savior has all those blessings as well. Forgiveness of sin, the promise of resurrection in the future, an immediate adoption into the family of God, ongoing cleansing from sin. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that and we celebrate that at this time in communion. Also, verse 26, what else do we do? It's not just all on ourselves thinking about what God has done for us. Verse 26, we get to make a proclamation. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He is coming again. Can I get an amen? He is coming again. Amen. Maranatha. That means the Lord Jesus is coming. We thank him for that great reality. We live in light of that as Christians. So let's go ahead. As the Lord Jesus said, do this in his memory. Let's eat and drink together. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.